Pull up a stool. Let me pour you a drink. And let's talk a little noir at the bar. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the Left Coast Crime in Seattle, April 11th to 14th. So not only do you get to hear them on the show here, you can go visit them, meet them, and maybe get a book signed. Well, we're having some delicious cocktails down here, and we've been joined by James D. of And If I'm correct, James, you'll be right reading your short story, There's will Take Up Circuits. That, that is what I'm reading. I'm, I'm a contrarian among the group today. This is a short story I wrote a couple of years ago. Just a quick hit in and, out, in and out, so to speak. All them bodies crowded under the tent mixed with July humidity. It's a heady brew, the air thick with sweat and the hope of salvation. Not that anyone notices because Brother Josiah has been speaking in tongues for the past five minutes, and this enraptures the crowd. They are hearing words intended only for God, the Bible states. They eat this up, Josiah told you once, but you got to start slow, though. On a week-long revival, you can't blow your whole wad that first night. Give them a little at first to get them talking to the neighbors. By the last night, there's a full house, and you're talking gibberish, and they'll think you're a prophet. He took a long slug from a pint of Kentucky gentleman. That's where the big money comes in. Tonight's packed, just as he promised. Folks jammed in tight, spilling out across the county fairgrounds where you set up. Brother Josiah's traveling show of faith. You joined last summer after you got out of Green River. The firebug you bunked with telling you about his cousin. The road preacher always looking for help. Hiring ex-cons is what they call good optics, Josiah said. Shows we're committed to helping save souls. The truth? Ex-cons understand what's happening here. They're not about to let a little faith get in the way of a good thing. The plate passed around once already. Came back heavy. Cash. Checks. A mix of jewelry. Some junk. Some pieces that'll fence out nicely. It makes you think about the faith it takes to pull rings off your finger to give it to a stranger because you believe that's what the Lord commands. To be fair, Brother Josiah is charismatic as hell. Young and movie star handsome. And you've got to have a bunch of suckers beyond just the hardcore old school believers. Those bastards will die someday. And to keep this working, there have to be fresh faces in the crowd. That's how you end up with these little fundamentalist girls out there their long hair and denim skirts to the ankles, and innocence in their eyes. Makes you remember how you used to believe, right up until the moment you didn't. You start thinking about the blonde girl in Alabama last month, the one Brother Josiah said had a blessing from the Lord, who he called a jubilee spirit. Josiah's hand on her shoulders, they knelt and prayed, and everyone called to the Holy Spirit for his will to be done. You watched it from Josiah's camper, smoking a cigarette, wanting the night to be done. The service ended and the crowd dispersed, and the next time you saw that girl, she was coming out of the camper, her hair a tangled mess, her face wet with tears. Josiah in the doorway, no shirt on, said they'd been studying scriptures and to make sure she got home safe. Tonight, Brother Josiah raises his Bible into the air, and the Gospel of Mark does say they shall take up serpents into their hands, and it will not hurt them at all. That's your cue. It's Friday night grand finale. What everyone's coming to see. You bring the boxes to the front of the tent. Josiah offers thanks and a wink no one else sees. He's been using the same old cotton mouths for years. 
got them from another preacher pulling the same grift, aged and deep-banged, and you keep them hungry and lethargic. They're harmless as milk snakes, Josiah says, all just for the show. He reaches into the box, brings out the first snake, and lifts it above his head. It writhes and hisses wildly, more activity than Josiah's ever seen. And there's a second of surprise in his eyes just before the snake sinks fangs into his flesh. You know how you'd let those old snakes go, watching them slither off to freedom before you found two fresh cottonmouths, ones that were young and full of themselves. You think about the way that young girl cried as you drove her home, the tears you cried once you stopped believing. And as the frenzy of the congregation swells, the serpent strikes Josiah again. Hallelujah. Yeah, I was following along online as you were reading, just to be a, just to be a cheater. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, and I'll ask you the question, I have so many questions on this because I'm looking at short stories myself, is uh, what do you want people to get out of this short story using the symbolism that you used? That's a really great question. Um, you know, I really think we need to question everything. Uh, I, I come from, you know, I grew up in eastern Kentucky, southern West Virginia. I uh, grew up a lot in fundamentalist religions. And I, I know the power that uh, that can have. And you see it even today in uh, the, the way that, that religion plays a role in politics today. And I really think the best thing you can do is question whether or not it, it should have that role and the role that it has in the control of other people's lives. Well, I mean, you you can see the visual, visualize that, and you can hear the words, and there's some there's some depth there, and I greatly appreciate the small small amount of space. So, thank you very much. Thank you much, Mr. Joe Clifford, and he's going to be reading from "Say My Name." Now, this is a true crime novel, so it's a crime true crime that never really happened, or did it? Tell us. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, that's the premise. I was going to do that introduction, but thanks for saving me the time. Uh, interpret that uh, term loosely. I'm going to do something uh, a little out of the box here and read the author's note, but I think you'll see why when I read it. When the Rogers twins, Annabelle and Ava, were reported missing the summer of 1985, we expected they'd be found. Of course they would. Kids didn't go missing from Berlin, Connecticut. Berlin, like the one in Germany, pronounced with the accent between syllables, like pearl and preposition. And God forbid local residents hear you pronounce it the other way. Ours was a nice little New England town, sconced from the horrors, such as kidnapping and murder. That was the stuff of books and movies. Annabelle and Ava must have forgotten to tell their parents about plans. They had to be at a friend's house, went for lunch, lost track of time. The girls would return home soon, safe and sound. It would all be one big misunderstanding, except the girls never came home. Police were called in, search parties sent out, eyewitness testimony taken. There were several suspects, but no arrests made. Now nearly four years later, their bodies still haven't been recovered. I'd like to say nothing changed after that summer. The dark, quaint, charming New England town remained an idyllic village where young families moved to escape the scourge of the big city. I'd like to say that my best friends at the time, Jim Case, Ron Montaigne, and especially Jack Lacko, weren't forever affected. Life, of course, is currently altered. I wish I could tell you that the girls going missing in no way played a part in my moving west or in my staying gone as long as I did. Just I'd like to tell you that my return has brought solace and peace and reconciliation with the past. From a certain point of view, maybe I could sell that narrative. I write fiction, after all. It's not like I've sat around a dark room for decades, slowly drinking myself into oblivion, consumed by the unknown fates of a couple of girls I knew for a few years when I was 12. 
And yet there's been an element of that somewhere in everything I've done since. My interactions with people in the industry, my interpersonal relationships with friends and lovers. Pushing 50, I've made many bad decisions, most of which I can't blame on that hometown tragedy. But their abductions certainly played a part in my decision to write crime novels. With over a dozen books published, I've enjoyed success as a mystery author. I've hit several bestseller lists and books have been optioned and translated into foreign languages. I was able to tour Italy a couple winters back. That was fun. Writing has earned me a big house on the hill, critical acclaim, money, life for me has gone on. Still, despite these reassurances, the horror of that summer continues to haunt, and its lingering specter has become a permanent part of who I am. I may have left that town, but that town never left me. So much of our fears is rooted in the other. This is particularly true in small, insular towns where everyone looks the same, acts the same, believes the same. I still remember the story my mother, God rest her soul, shared when I was a young boy about that poor woman from a tiny town not unlike ours who was visiting New York City. There in a subway bathroom, a gang of thugs confronted her, demanding her wedding ring. When the woman refused to surrender, the gang cut it off, finger and all. It wasn't until much later I realized that like that uncle or family friend who lost his arm by dangling out the car window, the story wasn't true. It was make-believe, a cautionary tale designed to scare us believing, behaving, living in fear. This is how I viewed big city growing up. It's a dangerous, godless place for the dangerous, godless people. It's why we stayed hidden in the suburbs, concealed by the lush green valleys of summer long after the winter days turned them cold and barren. I spent most of my life in the big city, and sure it's hard to be a saint there, but it's evils and transgressions, handling comparisons to the sinister elements that can lurk in a small town where everyone knows everyone's secret, so somehow no one sees a goddamn thing. It's not 1985 anymore. Annabelle and Ava Rogers' bodies most certainly will never be recovered. Like my mother, like my friend Jack Locko, those young girls are dead. My mother and Jack died of cancer. My mother was 53, Jack, my age, late 40, still their passing was natural, sad and premature, but natural. What happened to the twins was not. Their story is an abomination, an anomaly, an apparition, a thing that should not be but is. Growing up, I never would have believed it possible. Even as a crime writer who minds the darkest depths of the human psyche, I never could conquer something as ghastly as the truth. I uncovered writing this book. I'd feel better if the product were the result of my twisted imagination, except that it's true, all of it. What I discovered writing this book, I wish I could unlearn. I long to go back to that original spin, that fear of the others instilled by my mother. Go back to believing that monsters hide in closets and live under beds, but they don't. They reside in our hometowns, hiding in plain sight. They shop at the same stores, eat at the same restaurants, we pass them every day. We don't recognize them because they look just like us. Thank you. That's the author's note and introduction to say my name. I can relate to the uh, dealing with uh, true crime and, and an event that happens around you and it stays with you. How, how do you deal with that when you write the book, uh, you know, throughout it? How, what, what's your experience? Uh, well, I mean, just remember I'm a fiction writer who lies. So um, take take all of that uh, into account as you're, as, you're, as you're reading this book. And when you get to the end, I think you'll see uh, how, I, how I get away with calling it a true crime novel. It's um, sort of outside the genre, really. Um, uh, you know, you follow where the muse takes you, and this one took me into a weird place, and uh, all the people in the book are real. And, um, yeah, you'll have to wait to see how it ends up. Well, fantastic. Uh, you notice it's getting crowded down here, uh, and it's crowded with all good people, including Rob Osler, who uh, is going to read from his book, Cirque to Slay, which I believe is the uh, book two of the Hated and Friends mystery series, which will be coming out in early May. Am I correct? That's right. Off to the circus. 
<laughs> yes. So I'll be reading from chapter one, uh, Then Came the Fire. And since it's chapter one, I'll just start at the beginning. Great. Looking forward to this. A single spotlight flashed on, revealing a woman in white tux and pink top hat standing in the center of the ring. With the fading of the symbol's crest, she asked for a volunteer from the audience. I glanced around the massive tense interior to see who would be brave enough to join Mysterium's famed magician, Kennedy Osaka, on stage. The next instant, I was blinded by light. Despite us sitting in the rafters in the last row, a spotlight, as if magnetically drawn to big personalities, managed to find my best friend's raised hand. Wonderful, the magician announced, lifting a tapered white sleeve toward Hollister. Please come down, madam, and join me in Mysterium's ring. Like a kid rushing downstairs on Christmas morning, Hollister nearly tripped as she raced down the aisle while an assistant wheeled a large cabinet onto the otherwise empty stage. After a bit of repartee and fanfare, Hollister was ushered into the cabinet, her mohawk brushing against its ceiling. With a grand flourish, the magician slid the door shut. Intensive music thro throbbed as she spun the large box around in a circle. The rotation completed, she paused dramatically before throwing open the door. Oohs and ahs from the three hundred people in attendance filled the tent. Hollister had vanished. I knew it was a trick, but still it freaked me out. Another volunteer was recruited to the stage to examine the cabinet inside and out. Seemingly satisfied there was no Serena Williams-sized woman hiding inside, he hurried back to his front row seat to the audience's applause. The magician closed the door again and wheeled the box in another 360. The music crescendoed. Tiny blonde hairs on the back of my neck and arms shivered in anticipation. I leaned forward in my seat. Kennedy Osaka dramatically paused again. I swallowed hard. The entire tent went silent. She flung open the door. The audience's collective held breath gave way to an eruption of applause and cheers of delight. My bestie had suddenly reappeared, now wearing an outfit identical to the magician's. Never mind that on Hollister, the white spandex made her resemble one of those inflatable snowmen people set in their front yards at the holidays. Hoot, hoot, I howled. Not only was the trick next level abracadabbering, but I had never, ever seen Hollister wearing anything other than black. She was escorted backstage and within minutes hustle, hustled back to our seats in her own clothes. The quick change and steep ascent had her breathing hard. That was a blast, Hayden, she said. I can't believe you didn't go for it. Then again, I suppose you volunteering was long odds, huh? Yes, somewhere between you and heels and me anywhere near basketball. After a brief musical interlude to settle the crowd, the ringmistress, a tall, slender woman in a sultry black gown, introduced the next act. Against the low rumble of a timpani, she touted the group's acrobatic awards collected from competitions around the globe, each accolade heightening the anticipation for the spectacle to come. Again, the lights dimmed. To a chaotic sweep of spotlights across the stage, she announced, And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Mysterium's Tent of Splendors, from Romania, and celebrated the world over, Adrenaline. According to the program notes, an Estonian rock band, appropriately named Estonia, replaced the orchestra on the raised stage. They served up a screeching metal riff as the four members of Adrenaline entered the stage from the four different entrances used by the audience. The guys cartwheeled down the aisles, performed handstands on the arms of chairs, and somersaulted into the ring. Wearing the costumes I had seen in the program, studded black harnesses, and essentially tight black boxer briefs, they took turns performing increasingly complex twisting flips as they raced across the stage. Next came a routine with chairs, which culminated in one guy doing a handstand on a wooden chair held by another who stood on another guy's shoulders who perched on the shoulders of the fourth guy. 
Then came the fire. Five flaming hoops descended from the catwalk high in the tent's pitch and hovered above the stage at heights of about three to six feet. One by one, each guy sprinted across the stage, jumping feet first or leaping head-on or flipping in a tight spinning ball through each hoop. Up in the ante, one horizontal hoop was positioned about twenty feet from a trampoline. The guys took turns bouncing to unnerving heights and through the ring of fires they performed complicated aerial stunts. It was like watching Olympic platform diving, just live and upside down and with fire instead of water. The mini-show concluded with adrenaline receiving a standing ovation. The evening then entered its final phase, a cake and champagne reception with an opportunity for us VIP guests to have pictures taken with cast members. Hollister and I had only scored tickets thanks to a friend of a friend, despite qualifying only as P's in that acronym. For its sold-out month-long run, Mysterium had set up its extravagant tent just south of Seattle's downtown. The mashup of cabaret, magic, and aerial arts, with a Michelin dinner thrown in, had been, the ta had been taking America by storm. Hollister gave me a shove. Those adrenaline boys are here for a whole month. Go get a picture with them. While you're at it, get a phone number. I replied with a groan. Hollister knew I would never do any such thing. Hanging around her, I'd lost some of my natural shyness, but never would I match her boldness. More comfortable watching from the sidelines, I occasionally gave in and followed her, feet dragging and cursing under my breath onto the field. And yet I'd be lying if I didn't admit that Hollister's friendship hadn't been good for me. Because of her, I'd at least partially broken out of my shell and discovered courage I didn't know I had. But there were limits, and one was hitting on a Romanian Adonis in short shorts. Excellent, Rob. Very visual, though. Very descriptive. I could see what you were writing. I greatly appreciate it as a reader listener. I'm sure that was important to you as you were writing it, especially when I think about you going to your second book in the series. How was it going, writing it from the first book and going to the second book? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, at least for me, well, it's only the first time I've done it. So I, I think it's going to be the most challenging from the first to the second um, because you have to, you know, tell enough of the story kind of recap enough of the, the story of the first book to give readers grounding in who the characters are and at the same time acknowledging that a lot of people, or at least hopefully a lot of people, read book one and you don't want to bore them with, you know, kind of rehashing a story that they, you know, that they've already read. So I think that's the trickiest thing is moving from one to two is, is making two fresh in its own work at the same time, you know, putting in enough enough reminders of, of story one where where people who start at book two, you know, it still works as a standalone. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. I think you, uh, the way you wrote the, this first chapter, me listening to it, I want to say, I need to go get the first book. I'm not going to start on book two. So I'm sure other people will coming out March 5th, I believe. That's right. This has been a production of the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at houseofmysteryradio.com.